Welcome to the Global Treasures Podcast. I'm Abigail Vacca. And I'm Keith Berthew. We're two travelers with a passion for exploring world heritage sites that have outstanding cultural value to humanity. We'll spend each episode exploring these places, their history, the people who built them, and who now work to preserve them for all of our benefit. What makes the concept of World Heritage Sites really unique is the idea that these places belong to all people, no matter where they physically live. There are sites across the world being added every year. We're going to release episodes in the order by year these sites were originally added to the list, starting with Season 1 in 1978. With that out of the way, let's get started. In this episode, Keith and I will be introducing you to Nahani National Park, located in the Northwestern Territories of Canada. I am ridiculously excited about this site. It is another site that I get to completely nerd out on. The geological history, chemistry, and general uniqueness of this beautiful site is something that I cannot wait to share with you. In particular, The geological history is something that is truly special, and Nahani is essentially untouched by humans. This is actually the main reason it was chosen by UNESCO. I'm super excited to take a deep dive into the special geology of this area over the millions of years it was developed. This park is gorgeous, first off. If you get a chance, take a look at some pictures online. It's pristine. The park is 1.2 million acres of undisturbed beauty in Canada's Northwest Territories. There are deep river canyons that cut through mountain ranges, huge waterfalls, and very, very complex cave systems. As mentioned before, the geology of this site is incredible in both the sheer number of different unique formations and also for its geological history. The formations made by the river and streams predominate throughout the site. In fact, almost every distinct category of river and stream that is known to scientists is represented in the park. Capping this is Virginia Falls, which is the centerpiece of the site and is one of the largest and most beautiful waterfalls in North America. At the point of Virginia Falls, the water from the river plunges about 300 feet in a massive thunderous rock plume. In the center of the falls is a tall granite rock peak called Mason's Rock. Due to the mist that comes off of these falls, The surrounding area is even home to several rare orchid species. The Flat River and Nahani River are older than the mountains that they cut through, and this creates other unique geological features. Some argue that these rivers have produced some of the finest river canyons in the world. Tectonic activity has caused igneous intrusion and has resulted in some spectacular granite peaks. There are more unique formations that I'll cover later that are also unique to this park. This area is known in geological terms as karst terrain, which is the name given a geological formation resulting from water from streams and rivers that dissolve soluble minerals such as limestone and dolomite. This produces distinctive landforms like cave systems, springs, sinkholes, and even sinking streams. This unique set of conditions also forms highly productive aquifers as well. As mentioned before, the South Nahani River is the centerpiece of the park. This river has produced four important canyons that can reach as deep as 3,300 feet. The names of these canyons are pretty easy to remember. They're called the First, Second, Third, and Fourth Canyon. The river is tremendously active with incredible whitewater sections throughout the entire length. 
It's also an example of an antecedent river where the mountains rose slowly enough and the river was powerful enough that throughout its history, the river has maintained its path without much change as the mountains rose around it. Since this river was meandering in its early life, that means that the canyons that the river formed are also meandering. As you start at Fourth Canyon, which is where Virginia Falls is, and continue up through Third and Second, you eventually reach First Canyon that starts at a point called Deadman Valley. This canyon is considered to be the most beautiful. It has the highest, most vertical walls. This canyon ends near Krause Hot Springs, making the canyon about 19 miles long. There are also mountains in this park, such as Mount Nirvana, which is the highest mountain in the Northwest Territories at 9,098 feet, Mount Sir James McBrien, and Lotus Flower Tower. I love these names. <laughs> these last two mountains form part of a formation known as Cirque of Unclimbables. There are several different landforms that have taken millions of years to form, and this gives the park a geological diversity that is not seen anywhere else in Canada. Sediment left by an inland sea between about 500 to 200 million years ago has since been pressed by incredible pressure into layers of sedimentary rock. These layers are stacked about 6 kilometers, which is just over 3.5 miles deep, and are rich with fossils left from these ancient seabeds. Through the tectonic process, which is a slow movement of Earth's continents and oceans over time, the North American and Pacific plates collided, and just like when two cars collide head-on, this creates massive ripples in the ground that push these layers upwards as the plates continue to push into each other with unimaginable force. These huge formations bent and broke and left the unique ridges that we see today. The same colossal collision caused volcanic activity, sending lava into the sedimentary rock left by that inland sea. Even though there's no active volcanoes in the park, the towers of heated rock are sent upwards from the lower levels of the earth, and this pushes that sedimentary rock that's above it upwards into the sky. This sedimentary rock eventually wears away by rainfall and wind, resulting in the granite towers left over that form the beautifully ragged mountain ridge. In addition to all this activity, for the past two million years, glaciers have covered most of North America. This creates most of the land formations that we see today. Even though previous ice ages have affected the park, the most recent ice age, known as the Wisconsin Ice Age, which happened between 85,000 years ago to about 10,000 years ago, touched only the most western and eastern parts of the park. And this has allowed the geological processes more time to develop than most of the rest of North America. Another notable part of the park is known as Rabbit Kettle Hot Springs. In addition to the unique type of hot springs that this is, the area is also home to the largest tufa mounds in Canada. So tufa is formed when the dissolved minerals, usually carbonates, come out of the water when it cools. The source of both the hot springs and the tufa mounds are deep within the Earth's crust near the base of these basalt monoliths that form that ragged range I just spoke about. That same volcanic activity that raised the mountain ranges heats up the water deep below the surface, and kind of like a coffee maker, this water percolates upwards through the rock, dissolving calcium carbonate and other carbonates as it goes. When the water reaches all the way to the surface, it cools, and this releases those calcium carbonate in rings around the pools of the hot water. These pools can be as large as a bathtub and as small as a fingernail. 
the process of this formation takes a long time. And some of these are calculated to be as old as 10,000 years left over from the last ice age. These formations are so fragile, they're known as Zone 1, and any visitor must be accompanied by park staff to minimize the visitor impact. This is kind of interesting too. All visitors that are lucky enough to see this have to go in barefoot. The park's alpine tundra, hot springs, mountain ranges, and forests are home to incredible numbers of birds, fish, and mammals. In addition to this, there are in excess of a thousand species of plant, biophrites, and lichen in the park, giving it a rich variety not found anywhere else in the northern region. The Dene, who are sometimes called the Slavey people, have used the lands around the park for thousands of years. Evidence suggests that humans were first in this area between 9,000 and 10,000 years ago, right after the last ice age. The local history mentions the Naha tribe, who are a mountain people who used to raid the settlements in the surrounding lowlands. It's said that these people quickly and mysteriously disappeared. First contact with European fur traders expanding into the region occurred during the 18th century. This expansion increased with the exploration of the region by Alexander Mackenzie and the establishment of trading posts at Fort Simpson and Fort Leard. During the 19th century, the nomadic Dene peoples settled into permanent communities near Nahane Butte, Fort Simpson, and Fort Leard. In the late 19th century, the mountain Indians of the Nahani region would travel down the Nahani River each spring in boats made of muskin to trade their winter take of furs. These boats were up to 66 feet in length. They would transport entire families, their dogs, and their cargo of furs down the river in these boats when the water was high. When they arrived to trade, they would actually dismantle the boats, sell the hides that the boats were made of along with the furs they brought, and travel home with just what they and their pack dogs could carry. Nahani was established in 1972 by then Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau. The park was then added to UNESCO's list as one of the first four natural sites in the class of 1978. Abigail, so my research into this shows that this park is tough to get to. So I'd be interested to hear what you find out about how to get there and any tips for travelers that are going. Yeah, uh, so Nahani is really unique in that there are no public roads running through the park itself, so visitors have to enter either by hiking in or via chartered float plane, and float planes are planes that land on water. So what people typically do is they fly into Yellowknife Airport or Fort Simpson Airport and pick up one of the float planes from there. There are specific landing sites for these planes in the park, and pilots have to have specific permits to land in Nahani, so make sure you hire someone legitimate. In terms of costs associated with visiting, the fees vary based on whether you're camping, fishing, etc. Please know that registration is required for any visitors planning to visit. You have to both register and deregister with park officials upon entering and exiting the park within 24 hours. Most areas of the park are open from 8.30 to 5 p.m., and there's just so much to do if you love to hike, canoe, go whitewater rafting, anything outdoorsy, this is the place for you. Yeah, so what are the most popular spots that people visit? 
I'd know I'd want to go to Virginia Falls above all else. Yeah, so Virginia Falls is a popular spot for visitors, as the views are spectacular. It's over two times higher than Niagara Falls, and hikers can get much closer than to said tourist trap. There are tours to Virginia Falls as well, where Parks Canada interpreters bring travelers on guided walks and are given the opportunity to see the Dene people and their tribal band ceremonies above the falls, which is cool. There's also the namesake Nahani River, where the fishing is supposedly excellent. So this is the Northern Territories. Is there like a certain time of year that it's better to go either due to crowds or weather? I'm guessing the winters here can be especially harsh. So since this is a mountainous area, the weather fluctuates frequently and pretty rapidly. In August, it'll dip as low as 32 degrees Fahrenheit in the evening with frost on the ground, to being as high as 80 degrees on the same day in the early afternoon. Ice begins to form as early as October. And in spring, I do want to note that they sometimes get significant flooding, so please check the weather prior to your visit. They do get some rain in July and August, with mid-afternoon showers not being uncommon, but they've even gotten snowfall during the summer, so dress accordingly, aka lots of layers, and be sure you're wearing appropriate gear such as boots if you go hiking. Peak season for visitors is July and August, but the most visitors they report getting is as little over a thousand people in a single year, so I think it's safe to say you won't be battling crowds no matter what time of the year you visit, and you might not even run into another human at all. From my research, it sounds like this place is for truly experienced hikers only. Is there a way the rest of us can visit to take pictures and sneak a look without going on one of these crazy expeditions? Honestly, I think this would be a difficult place for people who aren't in decent physical shape or have serious health or mobility issues to access. Like, as I was researching this episode, I thought to myself, I I don't think I could access this place. Again, you can't drive there to see it, and you have to hike to the park or enter by air. So if you decide to take this expedition, please know it's not for the faint of heart. Campsite space is also limited, as there are only five designated campsites throughout the entire park, and there aren't really any amenities. In fact, the only buildings that we know of in the entire 1.2 million acre park are the three staff cabins and one forestry cabin. What a job that must be, to be so separated from society like that. There's also one lodging area we found called Nahani Mountain Lodge, which has four cabins you can rent, and some amenities like a generator that runs electric lights and a propane fridge. The lodge is the historic home of Gus and Mary Krause, who were pioneers that lived here before the park was established. Again, this lodge is only accessible by float plane. Another thing that comes to mind with that question is safety as well. We mentioned that this is the habitat of many potentially dangerous animals. Please be careful if you go. I know the photography enthusiasts might want to get a close-up of a moose or a bear, but the animals can be aggressive, so please don't approach them. This is their home, not yours. Be respectful of that. Well, that makes sense. So this area is essentially untouched by modern mankind, and I would assume since there's very little access to the park, and it's so difficult to get to, with relatively few visitors each year. 
No one is going to try to set up a restaurant or supply store near the park. Correct. I think they should give us an HGTV show, Podcasters in the Wilderness, where we set up a supply shop there. Yeah, that's us. Anything for the hustle. Okay, on to Abigail's favorite section of these sites. Any Bigfoot sightings, ancient aliens, ghost stories, disappearances, true crime? So what did you uncover about this particular site? No Bigfoot sightings. So the story I'm going to tell is supposedly true, or some argue it's simply a tall tale drawn out of a true story. So there's a 200-mile ravine that has been nicknamed the Valley of the Headless Men, and many believe it's cursed. So during the very early 1900s, many would travel to Nahani Valley for gold prospecting purposes. For those who don't know, gold prospecting is when people try to find gold deposits. And if you're in the United States, you likely learned about the famous gold rush in California in the 1800s. Canada had its own called the Klondike Gold Rush. There were two brothers by the name of Willie and Frank McLeod, and they went to Nahani Valley to strike it rich. They had actually been to Nahani before, This was their second trip, as they were pretty successful in discovering gold during their first trip. And they must have done really well for themselves to be willing to take that treacherous trek by foot in the blisteringly cold snow a second time. Remember, there are no formal trails within this park. And with heavy use now, some of the more common trails have taken a kind of well-defined path. But back then, they didn't even have that luxury. So... The brothers took their second trip, and they never returned. They disappeared. Then, two years later, their headless bodies were discovered by a river, and side note, their heads weren't actually found. So who found them? This area is pretty remote. Somebody must have went looking when they didn't show up, maybe? Yeah, so it was actually their brother who found the remains. I guess he was frustrated by the lack of intervention by the authorities, and he put together a search party on his own. I also want to note something weird. There was apparently an engineer traveling with them, but I couldn't find his name. And he disappeared too, although his remains were never discovered. Then, almost nine years later, another gentleman by the name of Martin Jorgensen went to the valley for the same purpose, gold hunting. He actually sent letters to loved ones as he traveled, telling them he was successful in finding gold. However, the place he was staying caught fire. And when the remains of his body were discovered, similarly to the two brothers, his body was headless, still crammed into a sleeping bag. So with my incredible scientific intuition, I'm guessing that's why the valley is known as Deadman Valley. And maybe why the creek is also called Headless Creek. You got it. Again, lots of people claim this is a tall tale, but if you look at old Canadian newspapers from that time and reports from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they confirm that these stories are true. Lots of people have simply vanished without a trace. There have been a host of unexplained plane crashes in this area as well, earning it the nickname the Funeral Range. So, kind of like their Bermuda Triangle. So, did they ever figure out who killed the men? No. People continue to disappear, and headless bodies are still discovered over the years. This is likely why the parks are so strict about people registering as they come in and as they depart. 
So what this boils down to is that to this day, there are rumors that the reason certain areas of the park are closed to visitors is not to protect the fauna or the animals, but to protect the people from supernatural forces at work or a serial killer. Like I said in the Mesa Verde episode, national parks are considered to be potential hotspots for serial killers. Easy to dispose of a body when you have 1.2 million acres to choose from. So be careful if you take a visit to Headless Creek or Deadman Valley. I wouldn't take the journey alone if I were you. So we always like to share any issues, challenges, or successes in the preservation of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. I'm guessing that this is an easier place to preserve since it's so remote and has so few visitors. So besides the potential changes due to long-term climate changes, what challenges are facing the preservation of this park? Sure. So in regards to issues or challenges faced in keeping the site safe, it is legally protected by Canada National Parks Act and is co-managed by the Decho First Nation and Matisse Peoples and Parks Canada, which is the government. They carefully monitor the number of visitors, as we said before, to prevent pollution or think impact of the planes landing on the water. They're also trying to prevent mining developments within the park And they work to make sure that these developments stay on the outside of the park and not close enough to have a physical or biological impact to the park itself. It seems like the biggest importance is placed on protecting the animals. Nahani is home to hundreds of grizzly bears, over 40 types of mammals, more than 100 varieties of birds including eagles, caribou, alpine sheep, moose, timber wolves, I could keep going. It's incredible. However, the park is home to numerous endangered species as well. For example, it's the only known nesting site of the whooping crane, which looks like the love child of a flamingo and seagull if you ask me. You can Google a picture. It's pretty cool. But they work to ensure no one is hunting these animals on the grounds, as well as monitoring to make sure that invasive species aren't introduced into the habitat. Wow. This site is packed with biological and geological greatness. It was really fun to take a deep dive into this park, and I definitely put it on my list of must-sees. Also, Abigail, since this site is kind of focused along the river, I actually have a river joke. So what did the fish say when it swam into a wall? Wonder wall? Good 90s reference, however, no. It said, damn. Thank you for listening to the Global Treasures Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please, please, please leave a review with feedback and share with your networks. Reviews raise our ratings, which helps others find this podcast. See you next time.